delight to sing to you. We delight to hear about you and to talk about you, Christ, and to, to think about you. You are the delight of our souls, the darling of our souls in a sense that the treasure and the, the beauty that we love to adore. And we don't do that as well as we should or as often as we should. We long for heaven when we'll do that perfectly in a spiritual body, fully under the control of the Holy Spirit without sin, without weakness, without unbelief. But we long for that here and we, we pursue that. And, and we thank you for the encouragement of gathering with your people where that's excited in us and we are lifted up together to your presence and your glory and to live for you in this world. We ask now as we look at your word that you would open our minds and our hearts, that you would cause us to hear your voice and to learn what you would have us to learn from this passage and, and to better be equipped to worship and to uh, speak the truth to uh, those who don't or have not yet received it. So we ask you for this grace, and we pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew 28, we'll be looking at verses 11 through 15 this morning. And we're glad to have new visitors this morning, Mr. and Mrs. Harbert. It's our first time as a couple. They made it back yesterday, and we're just thrilled uh, to see them back now uh, married and uh, united. So I can't wait to get the updates. I'm sure you'll get a lot of questions. But let's open up our Bible here to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew 28, verses 11 through 15. And in the midst of this incredible testimony from the pen of Matthew, of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and that glorious truth, we have here in this little episode in verses 11 through 15, one of the most amazing displays of the spiritually darkened mind and the attempt to undermine the truth, to somehow alleviate themselves from the reality of the resurrection and all of its implications to every human being and particularly these leaders. In, in some way, these verses are a dramatic illustration of what Paul said in Romans 1.18 that unrighteousness and those who are yet unbelieving seek to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. In other words, hold it down. It's not that truth is not able to be known. It's not that it's not plain and easy for all to receive. It is that there is a intentional and sometimes unintentional, but nonetheless, at the end of the day, a willful refusal to believe the truth that is so plain and so evident. And that is, of course, the reality of a darkened heart under the influence of the spirit that works in the sons of disobedience of Satan. And I'm sure that you, along with me, are so often amazed at the things that people will believe rather than the truth. And some of the most ridiculous things, the most unsupported, illogical things that people will believe rather than believing the plain truth of Scripture and the plain truth of Jesus Christ, come crucified, risen as he is revealed in Scripture. I, there's many examples. Some I'll give throughout later, a little bit later. But one that always strikes me, I remember reading this years ago. Some of y'all will probably already know this. But uh, in terms of understanding life and the whole creation and evolution debate, this is uh, something I read many years ago that I think illustrates this point. Let me just quote where it's mentioned. This writer says this. Francis Crick in 1981 Shared a, Nobel, or shared a Nobel Prize for the discovery of DNA's structure. 
is now convinced, Francis Crick, is now convinced that life could not and did not evolve on earth. In a new book, he argues instead for directed panspermia. Directed panspermia. His belief that life reached earth in a rocket fired by intelligent life on some other planet. Crick admits that his view only moves the creation-evolution question back to another time and place, but he argues that different conditions might give life a chance to evolve that it did not have on earth. That's striking. This is a brilliant, brilliant man who made one of the most amazing discoveries in our time that have led to many other discoveries. We're not talking about a buffoon here. He's brilliant. And yet the best explanation he can give for his, the failure to fit an evolutionary model into what he can actually see as a scientist is, well, then this life must have come in from aliens at some point in the distant past out of which everything that we experience here on earth has come to exist and come to be. That's absolutely amazing. As a matter of fact, I don't know if, if some of y'all saw that in a recent visit that Bill Nye had to the Ark. He was in a discussion with Ken Ham, and Bill Nye uh, argued the same point that is a possibility. There's other things that our intellectual elites come up with in our culture. Many more could be added. One is a parallel universes. And they say, well, these are certain conditions that we have you here, but in fact, there may be many multiple universes and maybe countless other universes where other principles and conditions arise that might be totally unrelated to where we are now and, and explain some of the things that we see here. My point is simply this, that unbelief will do anything to cover over the truth and believe something other than the truth. Because as soon as you acknowledge the truth, you have now acknowledged accountability. You've acknowledged something that you are accountable to that is greater than yourself because you've had to acknowledge, you would have to acknowledge God. And that is something that an unbelieving heart in truth is simply unwilling to do, particularly the very idea of God, if we were to look at much of our intellectual elites today. Darkness does not come to the light. You can finish the verse, because when it comes to the light, can you finish it? Its deeds are exposed as evil, right? Its deeds are exposed as evil, and that is something that darkness simply will not tolerate. Simply will not tolerate. If Crick and those who hold this theories, and of course other theories that are just as ridiculous, were to acknowledge the reality of creation, they would have to make the logical step to a creator, and therefore, again, accountability. No amount of evidence will convince an unbelieving heart apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. And we've said this many times, but the rejection of the gospel, and, and you could look at your life, I could look at my life before coming to Christ, and say has nothing to do with arguments or intellect. It has everything to do with a moral condition of the heart, a spiritual condition of the heart that simply does not want to bow to the reality of being accountable to God and the need for repentance. That really is the issue. Intellectualism is simply a cover for a sinful heart. And this is no more evident than in the revelation of the resurrection. And because the significance of the, revela- uh, the resurrection is so great, because of all that it implies, we would then expect that there would be an intentional and even an intense effort to cover over the reality of it, cover over the truthfulness of it. Because as we've noted, as soon as you acknowledge the resurrection, it authenticates the person of Christ. 
It acknowledges his soul's sacrifice and all the implications there in terms of sin and repentance and judgment and so forth. It acknowledges the authority and the truthfulness of God's word, his authority over the world and his soon and coming judgment. These are, those are some pretty heavy things for an unbelieving heart to accept, right? Those, those are some pretty challenging things for a heart that is not yielded to God to acknowledge. And so as I said, in the case of the resurrection, it's, it's no surprise then that we would see many attempts to try to cover over the reality that Christ did in fact rise from the dead physically, bodily, and that he did in fact appear to many, that he did in fact send the Holy Spirit as promised, and he did in fact establish his church, and he will in fact return for that church and establish his kingdom on earth, ridding himself of all of his enemies. So it would be no surprise then that unbelief would want to cover that up. So just to illustrate this point before we get into our text this morning, I want to give you just a few examples of the way that this has been attempted. Some of these you'll be familiar with. I actually learned a few of them uh, this week that I had not remembered or ever heard of. The first one is this. This is one of the most popular uh, explanations for why the tomb is empty or why the resurrection did not really happen, as Scripture says that it is. It's called the, the swoon theory, most popularly. And I'm sure many of you have heard of that. And, and this basically, this is actually the tenet of Islam, uh, holds this, that in fact, Jesus did not really die. What happened is he was severely weakened on the cross, and he appeared dead, but he was somehow revived at a later point. Maybe it was the cool air of the night. Maybe it was some medical attention of his disciples or whatever. He was somehow revived. He was somehow regained strength. And he was able then to remove the stone and then to appear to his disciples as being resurrected. And that's the explanation. The problem with this is that it would mean that Jesus, who endured flogging, beating, crucifixion, a spear that went into his side and into his heart, who was over six hours on the cross, who lost massive amounts of blood, who was weak from exhaustion and thirst, presumed dead by Roman soldiers and two other men who were familiar enough with dead, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, who buried him in the grave, that all of these people were deceived about his death. It would then mean that the same person who endured all of that removed the burial wrappings, folded them neatly in the corner, rolled away a stone that even three healthy women, even more than three, thought it to be an impossible task, managed to slip past Roman guards or Jewish temple guards, one of the two, walked seven miles to Jerusalem on wounded feet and appeared to the disciples invigorated and lively to convince them that he had raised from the dead. That's kind of foolish. Right? But that is, that is one attempt. Another one is the hallucination theory. And the hallucination theory says this, that the disciples imagined that they saw Jesus and were so emboldened in their heart by the sheer force of proclamation that they convinced the whole world. Another slant of that is that Jesus actually did appear to them in a vision and that vision was then powerful enough to convince them and they preached the message of the resurrection. This was first suggested by Celsius in 577 AD, but gained a new fervor in the 19th century. The problem with that is it can't account for the empty tomb of Christ. It cannot account for the sudden cessation of the appearances of Christ after 40 days. It cannot account for multiple appearances to multiple people in multiple places, which all goes against the whole theory of hallucination and how it works. And it makes all the apostles, as well as, well as literally hundreds of others, liars who also gave their life for the message of the resurrection of Christ. In other words, it's a 
It's a foolish theory. Another idea or attempt at this is that what actually happened, this is the wrong tomb theory. So what actually happened is it was dark. The gospels say it was dark in the early morning when they set, it out, set out on travel to go to the tomb. And so what happened is they got confused. I mean, they were emotionally overwhelmed with all of these events that happened. And so clearly what happened is they simply went to the wrong tomb. And then that's when they thought that he had raised, been raised from the dead. This is the wrong tomb theory. However, all of the Gospels are careful to note that Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary Magdalene, and other women followed in, uh, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea after watching all of the events of the crucifixion, followed them to the tomb. They were there watching the tomb except when they left for the Sabbath. And they knew exactly where it was and were also able to lead the disciples there. Also, if this were the case, that they simply went to the wrong tomb, then the Sanhedrin would have very simply and quite easily gone to the right tomb and got the body and presented it to everybody as Jesus being dead and not risen from the grave. There's another theory. The legend theory says that the story of Jesus' resurrection was simply a legend that developed among Christians. That they simply over time had this idea, this story of him rising from the dead and it turned into legend and it took on all the force and the power of truth to those who wanted to believe it. The problem is that there was not sufficient time for legend to develop and this can account again for the witnesses, the empty tomb, the change in the apostles and so many others. And then there's several other theories. I'll just mention them to you in passing. There is the telepathy theory. Yes, I said telepathy theory. Uh, It is explained this way, one who uh, noted it, that God sent telepathic messages to Christians that caused them to believe Jesus was alive. That would be similar to the vision theory. Another one was the seance theory, that there was a medium and there were occult magical practices involved. And this medium somehow sent out these spiritual, through spiritual power, these messages to the disciples and convinced them that Jesus was still alive. Another is the mistaken identity theory. In other words, it was somebody who was only impersonating Jesus and who would convince the disciples that, in fact, he was still alive. There's even one that was mentioned by a couple of authors called the alien theory. That's a good one. The alien theory is that aliens came and they took the body, which is clearly has uh, power to it to convince an unbelieving mind. So these are all just examples of ways that the, exp- the resurrection has been tried to, or they've tried to explain away the resurrection. The last theory is the fraud theory, and this is the one that's introduced in our text, and namely that his body was stolen and that his disciples, in a lie, promoted the message and proclaimed that Jesus had, in fact, been raised from the dead. Now, again, all of these simply illustrate the simple point that unbelief refuses to acknowledge the reality of the historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ because of its implications and significance. And so the theme, really, then, of this section here is that sin desperately seeks to hide the light of God's glory and salvation in Christ. That's what darkness does. It desperately seeks to hide the light of God's glory. John put it this way in the opening of his gospel, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not overtake it as desperately as it tried. Let's read our passage and then we'll look at a few points to make this more clear. Begin with me in verse 11. Matthew records these, this, these words. 
Now, while they were on their way, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priest all that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, You are to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and did as they had been instructed. And the story was widely spread among the Jews, and it is to this day. And so there it is. There is an accounting of how the Jews intended to hide over the reality that was playing before their eyes, namely the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Let's notice first and just briefly in verse 11 that darkness runs to the wrong source. Darkness runs to the wrong source. Verse 11 tells us now while they were on their way, they were on their way is referring to the women who were just now leaving the presence of Christ. Remember that he appeared to them when they were on their way to find the disciples. They fell at his feet, they worshipped him, they grabbed his feet and, and so forth. And now they're running out, having left Jesus, out to find the disciples. So now as they were going, as they were on their way, behold, some of the guards came into the city to report to the leaders all that had happened, the chief priest, all that had happened. Now, Matthew is here setting up an intentional contrast, a very striking contrast. Think of this. The women are leaving the presence of Christ, and they're filled with a sense of joy and worship. These guards are leaving the same scene, though not having seen Christ, and their hearts are filled with fear, and their hearts are hard. The women are running to spread a message of truth. The guards will run to spread a lie to cover up and hide the truth. There's an incredible contrast, an incredible irony here in these events. Now, once these guards then, they go and they leave the tomb. So this is happening probably simultaneously that Matthew's saying, like, while the women were doing this, this is what was happening with the guards. Remember, the last report we had of them is that they were lying on the ground as dead men back in verse 4 of chapter 28. And here they are when they did finally come to get over their stupor that was put on them by fear of seeing the angel. They immediately ran off to tell the leaders. Now, since these guards did not see the risen Christ, the events they would have told them about was the, the angel who appeared in his dazzling glory. They would have told them about the accompanying, accompanying earthquake and the stone being rolled away, maybe even the empty tomb. And so they were running to these leaders with this incredible story. Again, their hearts filled with the fear and the confusion that caused them to fall down to the ground. Now, we don't know how many guards were there. It's been suggested often that there were about 12, and this was just a small group that went from them. In either case, these are guards who would witnessed these events. But the point I just want to note briefly here is that they ran to the wrong source. They ran to the wrong source. They ran to the chief priest. Those are the last ones who are going to give them any kind of accurate information, any kind of accurate information. Now, this is understandable at one level because it was, in fact, the chief priest and the Jewish leaders who hired them and who had consigned them to be guards at the tomb to make sure that nobody came and stole the body or particularly his disciples. And so, it's naturally, they would go to them first. And also, if they were Roman guards, as many think they were, they could have been either Roman guards or Jewish temple guards. Uh, either way, but if they were Roman guards, then they surely would not have wanted to go to Pilate first, because what does Pilate do to guards who fall asleep on the job? He kills them, right? He puts them to death. Uh, that simply is unacceptable as a Roman soldier, and so then they would have also gone, even as Roman guards, to the Jewish leaders and hope probably of some kind of protection or explanation. 
However, the fact that later in this account we learn that they did accept a bribe from the Jewish leaders to spread a lie and to save their own necks, even unconcerned about their own reputation, exposes in reality the motive of their heart, which was totally self-interested and not concerned with the truth. And that really, beloved, is one of the main points of this whole account. Nobody here, neither the Jewish leaders, did they examine their story at all, neither these guards who were there, or really in reality, even the Jewish nation who heard the story, nobody is really concerned with seeking out the truth. None of them. That's the, that's the character of unbelief here in this case. And so often. In fact, in fact, this is how sin works on a darkened mind. The ultimate goal of unbelief is not to know the truth, but it's this. To justify one's own belief system or way of life. It boils down to that. It's really that simple. All of this sort of attempt to cover over or somehow undermine the truth of Scripture, whether it be by intellectual elites in our colleges and college campuses that you might hear as uh, witnesses or spokesmen on news programs or whatever it is, is simply an attempt to somehow justify their own belief system or way of life. It has nothing to do with the search for the truth from an honest heart which is the case for those in whom the Spirit of God is truly working, like the Ethiopian eunuch that we read about this morning. It is, again, as Paul said, attempt to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. All of the intellectual or popular arguments against the plain facts and reality of Scripture and the personal work of Christ is not motivated by a search for the truth. And so this is what we see here. Let's move then to the second point this in verse 12 a desperate denial and deception of darkness desperate denial and deception of darkness and so he says here in verse 12 and when they had assembled with the elders they being the guards and consulted together they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and they said you are to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep in other words while the soldiers were asleep and a really striking scene I mean this whole thing is really a striking and a pathetic scene and it shows this, this constant sort of energy that's being expended by these leaders, not only here, but really this is just the capstone of what we observe throughout the entire ministry of Jesus, to somehow undermine the reality of what he was actually doing and actually saying to the people and to them. And so here then is their final attempt to undermine his person and his work, which was really plain for, for all to see. And it is the height, again, of irony. It's the height of irony. I mean, kind of notice the scene here. These are the same leaders who actually went to Pilate and said they were concerned about the disciples coming, stealing the body, and then spreading a lie to their people that somehow Jesus had risen from the dead. As a matter of fact, they, were, they said this in verse 64 of chapter 27. They didn't want them to say, He has risen from the dead and the last deception will be worse than the first. So they're making an argument that His disciples will spread deception and in fact, here they are doing that very thing in light of the plain evidence of the truth. It's really quite in a desperate attempt to cover over what was so plain for all to see. Again, this happened throughout the ministry of Jesus. When they saw his miracles, they said, it's not the power of God, it's the power of Beelzebub. It's the power of Satan. When he healed the man 
undeniably on the Sabbath, they say he's irreligious. He's opposing the law of Moses and therefore he can't be of God. When he did miracles through his disciples after he had risen and sent the Holy Spirit, they said, I think it was in Acts chapter 5, we can't deny that a miracle has taken place. So they simply tried to silence them and told them to stop teaching about Jesus. So the issue here was never the fact that they did not understand that these things were true. The issue is they didn't like the truth. And so they wanted to cover it up and they wanted to hide it. And this was extremely, extremely deliberate. And, and they just noticed that. They, when they had assembled with the elders and they consulted together. They consulted together. In other words, this was planned, it was thought through, it was intentional. They knew exactly what they were doing. They knew they were covering up a fact that they otherwise could not explain. They never argued that the tomb was empty. They never argued that the angel did or didn't appear. They never argued any of those things. They simply immediately went into damage control for their own reputation and position and say, how can we somehow cover this over? How can we somehow hide it from the people? Because then for certain, they will follow him. As a matter of fact, again, as I mentioned, this is throughout the ministry of Jesus. And you don't have to go, I'll just read it. But in Matthew 12, 14, Matthew uses that same word here in the same form that's translated consulted together. Some say they planned together or whatever. But consulted together is a good idea. He uses the same word four other times in the Gospel of Matthew. And every time it is these leaders somehow trying to pull their intellectual resources to deny what was plainly before their eyes. Let me just read some of them to you. In chapter 12, verse 14, after Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, it says in verse 14, chapter 12, but the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how they might destroy him. In other words, they're not asking the question, what does this mean that he just healed a man? What does this mean when we see his power in line with his teaching and the effects of his ministry? They simply go, this is unacceptable. And they go and they seek to destroy him. In Matthew chapter twenty-two, fifteen, 15, this word is used one other time. And it says this. Then the Pharisees went out, and this is when Jesus had entered into, remember in 21, he entered into Jerusalem. They had challenged his authority immediately because he challenged their authority, turning over the tables and so on and so forth. And then they get together and they're coming to Jesus after they've really been humiliated through his parables and, and through his actions. And it says this in verse 15, the Pharisees went and they plotted together how they might trap him in what he said. In other words, not testing what he said against Scripture to see if it might actually be true. Not testing what he said again in line with what he actually did to see if in fact he is the Messiah because that's whom we're seeking. No, their intention was simply to come together to somehow discredit this person who was discrediting them before the people. You see? You see how unbelief works? In chapter 27, we come to the same thing. He uses the word one more time. In verse 1. Now, this is after they'd already taken him and had this mock trial, this sort of fake trial, in which they only loosely even tried to give some semblance of obeying Jewish law at the time and, and how this, these court proceedings were to go. But it says in verse 1 of chapter 27, Now, when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. 
You see, this is just constant throughout his ministry. Never was there the question from these religious leaders, is this true? Is this true? It was simply, how do we silence this person who is a threat to us? And as I said, this is absolutely futility. It's futility. You can line up all the intellectual elites of their day, all the religious leaders, all of the liberal theologians, all of the new evolutionists, the new atheists, excuse me, who want to not only discredit Christianity, but to destroy it and wipe it off the mat because it is a threat, really, believe it or not, to their sexuality. That's really what it boils down to. The truth of the Christian gospel and the truth of Christ is a threat to them being able to live however they want, which for any of them, they say it with their own lips, it has been said, which is somehow going to regulate how they can satisfy their sexual desires. That's really Romans 1, isn't it? It's Romans 1. But listen to God's attitude towards that. And this is why I say it's futile. Listen to Psalm 2. He says this. The kings of the earth, or verse 1, he says, Why are the nations in an uproar, the peoples devising a vain thing, empty, foolish thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their feathers apart, cast away their cords from us. In other words, totally absolve ourselves from any authority and accountability to God. Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs, and he scoffs at them. And then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. It's this very passage that is quoted by the apostles in Acts chapter 4 after they had been threatened, after they had been beaten and released for the message of Christ. He says in verse 25 of Acts 4, quoting this, Why did the Gentiles rage? The peoples devise futile things. The king of the earth took their stand against the Lord against his Christ, and they say, For surely in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant, whom you anointed, Harris and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles, the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predetermined to happen. So it's futile. It ultimately will end in nothing. It ultimately is going to, in many ways, actually affirm the work of God, as we'll note in just a minute, But nonetheless, this is what unbelief tries to do. Now, in light of the same undeniable evidence, again, they do not deny the reality of the resurrection. They simply try to hide it over. And again, I just want to note two points here. Go on. One is this, that it's self-deceiving. And this is, again, I'm just trying to show you through this example of how sin works on the mind, how sin works in the heart of unbelief. And it's self-deceiving. It's self-deceiving because somehow they actually think within themselves. Somehow unbelief has convinced the, the mind of those who reject the truth of the gospel that if I somehow deny the truth, I can make it go away and I can free myself from its reality. Right? Isn't that how it works? If somehow if I say something long enough or if I deny it with enough passion and emotion, then somehow that makes it true. We see this in politics all the time. I honestly think some of them don't even understand the truth anymore. They've lived in lies so often and deception so often, they can't even recognize the truth when it's there. Well, the unbelieving mind does that all of the time. And it becomes self-deceiving. And somehow it is that if I say it enough times, then that somehow might make it true. That somehow might make it true. And so they convince themselves here, maybe they actually 
came to believe it in some way after saying it enough times that in fact there was some other explanation for the empty tomb. And again, so much of scholarship is like that, that's in our colleges, that's in our high schools, that's in the public media, and so forth. So much of scholarship is more committed to proving a position than it is to searching for the truth. That's absolutely crucial, and that's why we as a church and as parents, really, we need to do our best for those of us who have young children and high school students to prepare them for those kind of arguments, to prepare them to think biblically, to prepare them for the kind of attacks that will come against Scripture because they're going to come fast and furious for many who go on to secular college campuses. And so we need to prepare them because these teachers, many of them, have no other desire than to undermine the truth of Scripture, to undermine the truth of Scripture. And so much that sounds erudite is really no more than an attempt to bolster one's reputation or, again, rationalize a personal belief system or a way of life. It's not a search for truth and integrity. So it's unbelief works with intentional self-deception. It's also self-inflicted blindness. And this, because again, the truth of Scripture is so plain, it's so clear, it's so simple, it is not hard to attain to the basic message of who God is, who Christ is, of His death, of His resurrection, of our sin, and His glorious return and salvation by faith. That is not something that God is hiding or that He's made complicated or difficult. But the unbelieving mind will simply refuse to submit to it. And again, Sometimes openly, sometimes with full awareness and acknowledgement, and sometimes not. Listen to the way, just, you can jot this, jot this down, this verse, but I'll read it. In Romans 8, 9, he says this. He says uh, in verse 7, The mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. It is not even able to do so. What is the point of that? Is this, is that God looks at these Rejections of the plain truth. When somebody rejects the plain and the simple and the clear proclamation of Christ and of the truth, God sees that not as just a weakness to work through, but he sees it as hostility. He sees it as rebellion. He sees that as a, as a condemnable rebellion against the plain truth of Scripture. As a matter of fact, in 1 John 5, he says, to hear the truth and then not to believe it and not to see the truthfulness of God in it, he says, is to call God, you know what he says? A liar, right? It's just to call God a liar. It's to say, no, God, what you're saying is not the truth. What I believe is the truth. Now, why did these leaders do this? And why ultimately does unbelief refuse to yield to the truth? I'm going to just suggest two reasons. One is fear of personal cost. In the case of these leaders, what would that have cost them? Well, everything that they had thought and that they held before the people, everything that they taught them, they would have to actually say, we were wrong. We were wrong. Imagine a college professor, how many are trapped in this culture, particularly on universities, this is huge, who are caught in this. They might actually become convinced of the truth. Some have had the courage to, to acknowledge this. Others don't. They would essentially be throwing away their academic career to say, I was wrong. I was wrong. If you acknowledge the truth of the Jesus Christ, the truth of Scripture, if you have a plain and open confession of Christianity on most college campuses, you are ostracized. 
you could lose your tenure. You are immediately put into the class of ignorant. And that is simply a greater price than many are willing to pay. It's kind of like he said in John 12 that the Pharisees, some of them were believing, but they weren't acknowledging this belief because they feared being put out of the synagogues. They feared what that would cost them among their colleagues. And so why does unbelief do that? Sometimes it's simply fear of personal cost. And so a lie is perpetuated, a belief system is perpetuated simply because the cost of going against that and of the truth would be too high to pay. Another one reason is because if it's a love for the wrong things. A love for the wrong things. Beloved, let me assure you, as is the case with many who did repent, even in scriptures we see them, some from the Pharisaical party, Paul being an example. If you love Christ and your heart has been convinced of the truth, then the measure of the reality of that, the measure of the sincerity of that faith is that whatever it costs, your love for Christ is greater Your love for integrity and for the truth is greater than whatever it might cost. If we love the wrong things, which is if we, if somebody loves their reputation and they love their lifestyle and they love the benefits that come from living in a lie, then simply they're not going to give it up because they're loving the wrong things. But if you love the truth and you've become convinced of the truth, then we must be willing to speak it no matter what the cost. But these leaders, of course, were not willing to do that. And so they consulted, they came up with this idea, and they told the soldiers to come up with the, or to tell the story that his disciples came by night, verse 13, stole him away while we were asleep. My first thought when I heard that was, at least they didn't come up with something as stupid as the swoon theory or hallucination theory, or even the alien theory. But then upon further examination, you can see that it, it really is just as stupid, and it really is just as foolish. First of all, let me note how plausible this might have sounded to those who heard it at first. One plausibility is this. The seal was broken and the stone was obviously moved. So something happened, right? The tomb was empty. The seal was broken. Something happened. Something would have happened. And for those who are already predisposed against Christ or predisposed to live within the system that they are already would easily go, okay, well, then I guess that makes sense. His stone was rolled away by his disciples. Or maybe, or maybe somebody just came and wants to perpetuate this deception so that all of a sudden everything that he said would have to have the ring of authority and truth. And so you can see how some who are already in that system, remember many of the nation were already in cahoots at some level, many of them for his crucifixion were very willing to turn on him when Pilate presented false charges against him. A second, they would have the motivation to do it. The disciples, they could have argued, the leaders, and saying, well, of course, because everything that they believed is now on the line. So, of course, they're going to come up with this this idea. Of course, they're going to come up with this truth that their Messiah, this Jesus, has risen from the dead. Again, that's the exact argument that they were making back in verse 64. Their disciples are going to come and steal him away and then they're going to perpetuate a deception that's going to verify their story that Jesus is the Christ. So this would have been one of their arguments and you can again see how if you're hearing this in the first century and for the first time and you're already in this Jewish system that these, are the le- these leaders are the leaders of, that makes perfect sense. You're just okay. That makes sense. Third, As was already mentioned, the body of Jesus was not there. 
And again, if somebody had already had a position, a presupposition that he was a deceiver or that he was a criminal, remember, he had just been crucified as a criminal before the nation with all the leaders rejecting him, then clearly we would already assume that he did not rise from the dead. So there must be some other explanation because he'd clearly already shown that he wasn't the son of God, right? He was on a cross, crucified. Our Messiah is not crucified. So all of these things would have been used and reasoned and argued by the leaders to determine that or to convince many of the people. But there are some problems with this and why their story can't be true. Let me give you a few here, just simply. First of all, it's not tenable to believe that the disciples would come and steal the body of Jesus, risk being caught. Where are the disciples at this time? They're hiding somewhere in Jerusalem because they're scared to death. They abandoned Christ when he was arrested in the garden. And as soon as he was crucified or taken in the garden, they all ran and they hid away. Guess what? It wasn't the apostles except for John who were at the cross. It was the women. So the idea that these disciples somehow managed enough courage, even though they're still hiding uh, after Jesus, uh, day after Jesus had been put into the grave, is simply ridiculous. It doesn't fit their own character, and their own actions. Secondly, it stretches the mind beyond credibility that these trained guards, whether Jewish temple guards or Roman soldiers, would be sleeping. Even more than that, that all of these soldiers would be sleeping and remain asleep while these disciples came in, rolled away a large stone that they would not have been more than a few feet away from, took the body out, and somehow sneaked it past them in the middle of the night. That's simply a ridiculous story. Third, it's difficult to believe that in light of the open hatred of the Jews, the Roman government, the intense opposition even of Gentiles later in the spread of the gospel, that this body would not somehow have been discovered and presented as evidence before this new message spread. Remember, this message was viewed as a threat to Judaism. It was viewed as a threat to the Roman government. It was viewed as a threat early on by Rome against humanity itself. It was viewed as a threat even against Gentile religion. It's hard to believe that with all of that, nobody would have presented the body. In fact, it never has, though, been presented. But fourth, and this is even the most obvious and the last one I'll give, if the guards were asleep, how would they have known who stole the body? How would they have known? If the guards are sleeping, how much credibility is it that they can give a detailed account of what happened to the body of Jesus while they were asleep? It's utterly absurd. It's utterly absurd. But that proves the point. That proves the point. The very absurdity of the argument, and it only takes a little bit of thought, that doesn't take a whole lot of thought and a whole lot of evaluation to understand the inconsistency and the absurdity of this message that went out. But in fact, it is the message that went out, and it is the fact, it is the message that in fact persuaded many, many of that day. And yet there's even another motive here that's revealed. Not only is it the motive of the threat that it would be personally to these leaders, but there's also the motive of greed. Look at what he says. They took the money in verse 14 or verse 15. They took the money and they did as they were instructed. They really had no more motive, no other higher motive these soldiers did than greed and self-protection. Imagine that. They saw an angel. 
They saw an angel that so impacted them that they fell down as dead men. And yet that did not stir up anything in their soul beyond their own advantage. They received the money, which would have been a sufficient amount of money, a large amount, you could translate that word, sufficient amount of money to convince these soldiers to ruin their reputation, to lie, to cover their own skin. They were motivated by nothing more than greed. I remember my old pastor, MacArthur, uh, one day he was on, you know, Larry King Live. Some of y'all may have seen that when he was on Larry King Live. Uh, he was an often guest there. And he, one time he was on there with Deepak Chopra. Anybody know Deepak Chopra? Read any of his books? Don't raise your hand. He's, well, he was on there with Deepak Chopra. And so in this conversation, I remember he was sharing with us as the congregation one time, like how in between the takes, in between the commercial breaks, this guy, he's, he's in, I won't try to do the accent. But uh, he would be in between these commercial breaks trying to just convince Larry King to promote his new book, to promote his new book. In other words, he was just a snake oil salesman. He was simply there, not because he had some deep compassion and deep concern for the truth, but he saw it merely as an opportunity to promote his own agenda. And that's how it is, again, with many. Do you know how many books you can publish easily and gain a reputation by writing some supposedly scholarly work to undermine the truth of Christianity? Do you know how much money there is available if you're willing to get on the bandwagon and not stand up for the truth? Do you know how many opportunities there are for teaching positions, for spots on television programs, to be on the History Channel and other places if you will simply compromise on the truth and simply promote whatever theory is there that might undermine the truth of Scripture? That really is the motivation of many. Money and popularity. Again, it's far less of a concern whether something is accurate or true. And yet, despite all of this, the light cannot ultimately be covered. Look at the last part of verse 15 and just note the last point is darkness cannot hide the light. Darkness cannot hide the light. And this story was widely spread among the Jews and it is to this day. Widely spread among the Jews and it is to this day. So these guards, they were faithful to the task. They went and they spread this lie. And it is believed by many Jews even today, but of course... When Matthew is writing this, he's right, meaning his day, the day of his writing. We do have evidence, clear evidence, even into the second century, that this was the dominant lie that was believed by the Jews in regards to Christ and in regards to the empty tomb. Justin Martyr, who was an early Christian apologist in the second century, wrote to a Jew named Trypho, and he was writing to address the errors and Trypho's teaching and his seeking to undermine the truth about Christ. And he writes this. He, Justin does against, uh, in, in what a writing called against Trypho. He writes this. For after you had crucified him, the only blameless and righteous man, when you knew that he had risen from the dead and ascended to heaven as the prophets foretold he would, you not only did not repent of the wickedness which you had committed, but at that time you selected and sent out from Jerusalem chosen men through all the land to tell the godless heresy of the, that the Christians had sprung up. The godless heresy of Christians had sprung up and to publish those things which, all they, which they knew about us and did not speak against us so that you are the cause not only of your own unrighteousness but in fact that of all other men, end quote. He then marshals support from 
Isaiah to repeatedly show how this working against the truth of God is a part of the history of the nation, is a part of the history of the nation. Jesus put it this way in speaking to the Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourself. Though coming at it from different angles, the point is this. Distorted teaching and outright lies of religious leaders are responsible for hiding the truth of countless numbers of people. And so the idea here and the the significance of this for these leaders is not simply that they were wrong, but they were hiding it from others. The message of God's grace, the message of God's salvation, the message of His glory in Christ. And so false teaching, beloved, as you know, is a very serious thing. A very serious thing. It is not something to be taken lightly. And when we're talking about false teaching, we're not talking about disagreements on secondary issues, though they are important. We're talking about false teaching that attacks the nature of Christ, the nature of the gospel, the authority of Scripture, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's the false teaching that we're talking about. And it's an extremely, extremely serious thing. And it's amazing how quickly that false teaching, especially in our day because of the internet, because of bookstores, you can go in and you have really bad next to really good and people are just so undiscerning. People who get most of their information through a Google search rather than reading an actual book or rather than going to trustworthy sites where they can get real information, real truth, trustworthy ministries about the truth of the gospel. They'll search out. If you want to find something on the internet, you can find it. If you want to believe something, it's not that hard to find somebody to agree with you. It simply isn't. It just isn't. You can find whatever you want. But to do the hard work, to do the hard work of searching out for the truth is something that many are simply unwilling to do. Simply unwilling to do. And it's amazing how many people will tolerate weak, false teaching because of convenience or laziness. Simply not putting the effort in to learn the truth. And so they'll simply follow whatever is easy and simple without doing the hard work of thinking. And so that is a serious, serious position. And so you ask, why did these Jews so easily receive this message? Well, we've already answered it. Because that's what they wanted to believe. It's what they wanted to believe. That's why. It's really not complicated. Why do some of the silly things that go, why does anybody pay money for Scientology? Because you want to believe it. You want to believe in aliens. You want to believe in all of these stories. They want to believe. The unbelieving heart wants to believe it. And as John said in 1 John 4, those who are from the world, listen to them. The false teachers who go out. Those who are from God, listen to us. It's not complicated. It's because if you want to believe a message, if you're here this morning and you don't believe or you have all of these arguments against, they are arguments that, you know, that be more than happy to sit down and talk about, but at the end of the day, at the end of the day, the plain truth of Scripture and the plain truth of history and the plain truth about Jesus Christ is that He is exactly who He said He was that he died and he rose from the grave and the tomb is empty. And the tomb is empty because of it. Well, there's more to say on that, but let me just end with this and then we'll go into the table. 
The resurrection then stands as one of the most verifiable truths out of all of history. Applying the same historical facts and method that we would learn anything about history, recognized by scholars wide and large, or far, wide and far, is the fact that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the most historically verifiable facts that there is. Let me just give you a few points on that. How can we have assurance of the resurrection? Well, one is simply by the ridiculousness of every opposing explanation. I mean, if you can't come up with anything better than that Jesus wasn't really dead and he rolled the stone away, that uh, simply authenticates the truth. Because of the doubting and timid, unbelieving disciples went out and after they had seen the resurrected Christ, they were totally transformed people who went out and every single one of them martyred for the testimony of Christ. As one author put it, liars make lousy martyrs. Liars make lousy martyrs. People don't die and show such courage in the face of opposition because of a lie, something they made up. Thirdly, the overwhelming testimony of those who saw the risen Christ, who had throughout their lives consistent testimonies and trustworthy characters. We're not talking about shady Joseph Smith kind of characters, right? Who have a whole list of reasons why you wouldn't believe him, the founder of Mormonism. No, these are men who had character, women who had character, whose lives displayed it, who were trustworthy, who were consistent, that they had seen the risen Christ. The early dating of Scripture and the writing in these accounts, which go back to the time of the events, were proclaimed to a generation who both witnessed and saw these things and had full access to the grave. It would have been easily shown or exposed if this were, in fact, false. The conversion of the Apostle Paul and James, these were not believers. Both of them were skeptics and even arguing against the truth of the gospel when they came to believe because they encountered the risen Christ. The massive growth of the church, the growth of the church as promised by Christ after sending of the Holy Spirit. In other words, one of the most overwhelming truths in the world is the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And as he said in Matthew 16, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And so as we come to the table, we delight in the fact that we serve a risen Savior. If you have any doubts in your mind about the truthfulness of Scripture, and I know not everybody here is a believer who's listening. If you have any doubts about the truthfulness of Scripture, about the resurrection of Christ or about the gospel of Christ, I would encourage you to come Talk to myself or Pastor Ted or some other believer, some other trustworthy person who will explain to you from Scripture the truth about the glory of Christ and of the gospel. For those of us who do understand and have trusted in Christ, we now come to his table to worship our risen Lord, being obedient to that meal that he established with his disciples the night he was betrayed That is the Lord's Supper in which we remember his death and his resurrection and we anticipate his return together. Let me pray and then the men will pass out the elements. Father, thank you for this, your word. Thank you for the gift of your son. Thank you for salvation, which is certain and sure and complete. Thank you for the testimony, which is undeniable that we can have great confidence in. But even beyond all of the evidence and those kind of things, For those of us who know you, it is because we have by your grace and by faith beheld your glory in Christ, tasted the bitterness of sin and the sweetness of forgiveness in his name and have daily fellowship with you. 
And we long for your return. Help us now as we remember these truths in this table. Strengthen our hearts by faith. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.
As we always want to be faithful to remind us that this is, uh, this is an ordinance for believers. It is for the church of Jesus Christ, those who have experienced the life-giving work of the Holy Spirit, who have truly trusted in Christ and give evidence of that in their life through repentance, through a desire to know Him. That is the essence of eternal life. Through His Word, to walk obediently with Him, to confess sin. If that is the character of your life, then that is who this table is for. And through in remembrance, we not only proclaim his death until he comes, but we also are strengthened and encouraged in our faith. If you are not a believer, those things are not true of you. Or if you are a believer who is not dealing with sin in your life, you have known sin that you have made a place for in your heart, then this also isn't a time for you to celebrate his death and resurrection unless it comes with a determination to repent of that sin and to battle it in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we have what is called an open table. Everybody is allowed to share in this together who makes a profession of Christ. We fence it simply by giving the warning that if you do take these elements in an unworthy manner, that it only will excite God's discipline and judgment in your life. And so we would encourage you not to do that. But for those of us who have trusted in Christ, who love Him, and though full of imperfection in this world and are battling our sin, but love Him and seek to have our lives come in conformity with Him and His righteousness and His holiness. We take this as an expression of worship and faith. And we follow the instructions of the Apostle Paul who said that he received from the Lord that which he also had delivered to them and uh, delivers to us through Scripture. That the Lord Jesus, in the night in which He was betrayed, took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and He said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And of course not, as some teach, that these elements turn into the actual body and blood of Christ. When they go into our body, they are merely bread and juice. But they are symbols, they are emblems of truths. And the bread of his, of his broken body and the blood is of his sacrificial and substitutionary death for his people. Indeed, the purchase of the new covenant. And so he says, in the same way he took the cup and after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink together. Michael will come and lead us in a line of a closing hymn.